When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you on yet another smoky day during wildfire season in the western United States. Real quick, I'm going to indulge myself with a little promo. I get pretty frequent questions from readers who already own my books and would like to get a signature without ordering a whole new set. To this end, my website store now offers signed book plates. Fancy little stickers you can slap on the title page or stick to your Kindle case or just love and cherish forever. You can find those on the store at brianmcclellan.com. On with the show. Today's guest is horror and science fiction writer Dan Wells. Dan is the author of the best-selling and critically acclaimed I Am Not a Serial Killer, which was turned into a major motion picture in 2016. He's also written The Partial Sequence, The Mirador series, the Audible original Zero G, and a number of other novellas, short stories, and standalone novels. I talk with Dan about authorial branding, supporting his family during the pandemic as a professional game master, some of the ins and outs of our business, and about his current collaboration with our mutual friend, Brandon Sanderson. Enjoy my conversation with Dan Wells. So Daniel, what uh, what is the project that you are currently working on? I am currently working on a collaboration with Brandon Sanderson that is called Dark One Forgotten. There's actually two parts to this project. Uh, Dark One is a graphic novel he put out a year or two ago, uh, and I'm writing the novel of that. But before I get to that, I am doing a prequel, which is called Dark One Forgotten, which is, uh, we decided just because we're weird, instead of doing this as like a prequel novella, Mm -hmm. we're going to do it as a six-part mockumentary podcast in the style of like serial or something. Yeah. And so it's being done for audio and I'm writing them as scripts. Uh, and it's this kind of amateur true crime investigator who's researching some stuff that turns out to be connected to the supernatural serial killer, who is one of the bad guys in the Dark One book. So, I mean, that definitely sounds way more like a Dan Wells book than a Brandon Sanderson book. <laughs> yes, it does. The uh, The Dark One series is a it's kind of evil narnia like there's a kid in the modern world who realizes that he can go into this fantasy world uh but the other half of that series is there's you know the evil monster supernatural bad guy from that world came into ours and became a serial killer and so it's very equal parts brandon and equal parts dan which makes it work really well but yeah the prequel is pure dan (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> evil narnia is a fantastic elevator pitch yeah that's i i i guess we could maybe sell it with that i don't know i just imagining like a child getting stabbed by mr tumnus <laughs> well you know that child had it coming 
<laughs> the child also was carrying a shotgun. So, you know. Yeah. That is fantastic. How long have you been working on this? Too long. Most of the year. So last year in 2020, the year the world ended, uh, I started doing, and you know this because I've been doing it with you. Because of Typecast, I decided to move into professional GMing. And so I'm mm-hmm. a GM for hire. And that's what paid my bills all last year. And what I'm finding this year, now that I'm trying to be a, an author again, is that uh, I've kind of gotten out of the habit a little bit. Plus, I have all this gaming stuff filling my schedule. Plus, I'm trying to write scripts instead of prose, and it's a lot harder. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's not a format that I'm used to, I should say. It's not that it's harder. It's that I'm unaccustomed to it. And so all those things combined, uh, the first episode took me three or four months Ooh. to write. Uh, the second episode took me three days to write. And the third one, I'm probably going to finish tomorrow, which will be three days. So now that I've got my head around it, it's going smoothly, but it's taken me way too long to get to that point. Do you, because I know that you've written in both a ton of different genres, but also a ton of different mediums. Like you, you worked on a TV show for a local station. You uh, did a, you did a play, didn't you? Yeah, I adapted one of my self-pub books into a stage play that uh, has been produced a couple of times, which is fun. And that was, uh, is that a Night of Blacker Darkness? A Night of Blacker Darkness. It's a historical vampire farce, basically. Yeah. Uh, and ever since I wrote it, I knew that it would work better as a, as a stage thing than as a prose thing. And uh, so several years ago, I went to my sister who works in theater and said, hey, let's do this. And so she and I worked together on the adaptation and we produced one in Tennessee, where she lived at the time, and my brother-in-law ran the theater department for a college. (laughs) And then we produced one here at UVU, where our mutual friend Ethan Sproke was uh, a professor. Yeah. And since then, a handful of high schools have done it. We made it kind of available. There's a, a website where People who run theaters can look for scripts. And so ours has gotten picked up and, and done a few times. And that's really fun. That's super cool. What so so you talked about the transitioning to writing a audio script being kind of a difficult transition. Ed, had you found that difficult before with the various mediums you worked in? Yeah, absolutely. Every time I, I go into it, uh, it it's hard <laughs> uh, writing for TV. I mean, the thing is, writing, people who are not professional writers think that writing is easy because every (laughs) moron knows how to write. You know, it's one of the first things we teach kids in school. And so they go, well, I know how to write. I know how to put words down on a page. I know how to spell. (laughs) But as I'm sure you are aware, actually (laughs) writing things well, telling stories effectively uh, is a completely different skill. We just use the same word for it, so people think it's easy. And so when I moved into TV, that was 100% different than anything I'd done in novels. Even when I tried to do short stories, that's a completely different skill set than novels. Uh, they're close, uh, but it's like it's like speaking French and then going to Italy. Like, you know, you can kind of understand what people are saying, but it's different and you have to relearn all of the nuances of it. So stage writing, uh, TV writing, uh, screenwriting, 
Uh, I've done a lot of scripts for audio, um, writing for game supplements. I've done a lot of RPG work. Uh, it's all different. Every kind, uh, every format has its own tricks that you have to get your head around. Yeah. Do you find that is the case with uh, jumping genres? Because you've written novels in horror, science fiction, noir, middle grade kind of science fiction stuff. Like, does that difficulty translate to moving around within the novel world? To some extent. Uh, Writing horror and then writing science fiction, I did not notice any significant differences. Uh, But when I moved into historical espionage thriller which i published last year called ghost station that one was super different and super hard the the rhythms of the storytelling were different and the expectations of the genre were different and i think some of that is horror science fiction fantasy those are all kind of under the same umbrella Mm -hmm. it's a very large tent and people can have their preferences within it but it's still in my opinion more or less the same audience for most of it whereas historical espionage thriller is not it's it's a very distinct uh kind of genre with its own expectations and so that was a hard one to move into that took me a long time i tried writing a western once too and it was the most abysmal failure of my entire writing life it was absolutely just horrific (laughs) i i remember years ago you and i talked about a um working on a science fiction fantasy world together, but separately, like writing our own things inside a same world. Mm -hmm. And I remember you sending me like the first chapter of something that you had written in that world. And, and it was kind of funny and I hope this isn't like super insulting, but it was kind of funny that I (laughs) immediately thought, yeah, Dan is not comfortable within fantasy (laughs) because, because that, that opening chapter was very much just epic fantasy uh, before kind of the science fiction elements had been introduced. And I remember thinking, man, this does not feel like a Dan thing at all. Uh, And he's not comfortable in it. No, that's, that's totally fair. Uh, I still hope to do that project. It's, it keeps getting kicked down the road though, as other, you know, paying work shows up. Weird how that works. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, epic fantasy absolutely is very different. And uh, that's kind of what I started writing way back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then kind of slowly crept further and further toward horror, which is where I first got published. And so I'm very excited to go back to epic fantasy. But you're right. It's, it's not something I have a lot of experience with. I definitely need to put a lot of work into it. I've been trying because of that experience Mm -hmm. uh, over the last few years to read a lot more epic fantasy than I have in, in, you know, lately because I grew up on it. But then when, once I became the horror guy and the YA guy, that's kind of most of what I've been reading. So I'm trying to get my brain back into gear for epic fantasy again. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. Do you, do you still have more uh, books under contract for your middle grade science fiction? Because, you know, I'm, for the listeners, we are jumping genres and projects a lot because Dan jumps genres and pro- projects <laughs> a lot. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's kind of wild looking at your kind of <laughs> your backlist and seeing what you've done. Well, <laughs> one of the reasons I want to get into epic fantasy is because I, I would like to be able to settle into 
a, a really supportive market. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I love writing YA, for example, but the YA market has no author loyalty. Uh, they love whatever everyone else loves. Uh, you know, kids will read whatever uh, publisher is pushing really hard, whatever the rest of the group is reading that day. Uh, and, you know, with a couple of exceptions, though, they they won't stick with an author. And this sounds weird to say because everyone's like, well, what about Rick Riordan or, or whatever? Um, and yes, something like that can take off. But, you know, you can have a mega bestseller and then turn around and try to sell something else. And no one has any idea who you are. Mm -hmm. YA, I guess the way to say it is they have a lot of series loyalty, but they have zero author loyalty, um, which is unfortunate. So but but Epic Fantasy, you know, they're loyal readers. Your readers will follow you till they die. Or till you die. I hope. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I do jump genres a lot, and that's my own fault. And I know that I could probably have a, a much more stable career if I would just stick with something and gain a reputation as, you know, if I were the supernatural serial killer guy and I had just followed John Cleaver, um, then that would I'm I'm sure that I would have maybe a more solid fan base. Mm-hmm. But you know, I've, I've got 19 published books and that accounts for seven of them. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to write what is exciting to me. Well, and that, sometimes well, it's thriller and sometimes it's something else. And that's what I was going to say is that when you become a professional author, that's kind of one of the negotiations you have with yourself is do I do what most publishers want me to do and become branded, which is kind of what I've done. Um, you know, become branded and have a thing that you do that people know you for. Um, or do you do what makes you excited at the moment? Um, and that's, and it really, it comes down to personal preference. It does. Uh, when I was 12 years old, I found in a library, Fred Saberhagen, and the first book of his that I read was the first book of swords, which is from his fantasy series. But as I, you know, devoured that entire series and then started looking for more, I realized he also was the guy who wrote Berserkers, which is this classic, incredible kind of von Neumann science fiction series. And he also has a ton of vampire novels and Dracula stuff. And he is 100 percent, you know, the author who convinced me that I wanted to be an author. Yeah. And I did have a chance to meet him and, you know, shake his hand at a world fantasy before he passed away. But it was only a couple of years ago that I realized, oh, my gosh, I'm I'm not just inspired by him. I'm kind of following that same career model where he wrote everything. And I think that's what gave me the the impression, uh, faulty or not, that <laughs> I could write everything. Yeah. And so I have jumped around quite a bit. To get back to your actual question that you asked, I don't currently have any more middle grade science fiction actually under contract. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is basically because 2020 screwed everything up, right? Yeah. And so I do intend to write more for that. uh, But I'm also kind of, I I would like to try my hand at middle grade fantasy Mm -hmm. because trying to sell middle grade science fiction in print is super difficult. And publishers keep coming back and say, nobody reads middle grade science fiction. We just want fantasy and maybe horror. 
And I'm like, well, I write those things, but I don't have anything right now. Yeah. Uh, my middle grade science fiction is Audible Originals, and they are like huge bestsellers. In fact, one of them is a perennial bestseller. Uh, every year it will come back and it will hit the top 10 overall on Audible, not just genre and not just children's. And yet, despite that pedigree, I cannot sell the print rights for it. Yeah. So I finally yeah. just went small press. Well, and the way that works, uh, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, is that Audible comes to you and says, we want exclusive audio rights for, I think it's a year. Uh, and then, uh, and then, but you keep everything else. Uh, and yeah, so, so yeah, they, they buy, they buy audio rights and then they buy one year of exclusivity, mm -hmm. meaning I can't, I have all the other rights, but I can't publish it anywhere for a year. And that's totally fine with me. And so then I have a year to figure out what to do and put out a print version. Um, and thanks again to 2020 happening. Uh, it's been, you know, the second book, it took two years to get that one out. But uh, yeah, it's, I really like it. It's, it's a weird publishing model, kind of what Audible's going for. And I don't know if they, they refer to it this way internally, but I do, is kind of a Netflix model where if you have an audible membership you can listen to some or all of their audible originals without you know needing to purchase them it's just part of your membership mm -hmm. and so that's where my books are so there aren't really royalties tied to it but it's a pretty good upfront uh chunk of money and then i retain all the other rights you know they're paying me forty thousand dollars for audio rights only for a yeah. thirty-five thousand word book it's a fantastic deal um if I could then turn around and sell print rights, which in middle grade science fiction is apparently very hard to do. Yeah. And you just, uh, you just put out yourself, uh, the, uh, the print, right. The print book, right. Didn't you for the, one of the, uh, ones? I'm actually working with Bard's tower, which okay. is, uh, every, just like everyone else in 2020, uh, Bard's tower is a uh, traveling bookstore. It's a New York, Times reporting bookstore with no physical location that just sells at booths. And uh, I do shows with them all the time and I will go to comic cons and things and, and sell books in the booth. Uh, and in 2020, when there were suddenly no conventions at all, and they were like, well, crap, we need a business model or we're going to go under, they became a small press. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, having already failed to get the zero G books anywhere else, I'm like, okay, sure. Let's, Let's try this. And so far, it's been a successful experiment. Um, he uh, has put out the first two, uh, Zero G and then Dragon Planet just came out like last week as of time of recording. And yeah, they're, they're working. Okay. It's, <laughs> it's not the big, huge publishing contract I wish I had, but at least people are getting the books and reading them. Right. Right. Somebody on Twitter had mentioned kind of the frustration of trying to read the books with the audible deal. And, uh, and I was thinking about that a little bit because it's a weird place to be as an author, because you want, you, you want to be able to fund this weird career that you have, but you also, <laughs> you know, want it to be the easiest way for a reader to get a book. And so, you know, what decision do you make? Like you said, the deal that you got for audio, fantastic, uh, yeah. from the author's side, Annoying from the reader's side who just reads in, you know, in ebook or, you know, yeah. physical. I mean, yes, but, you know, and I've heard that comment from a lot of people. And what I want to tell those people is it isn't really my choice. Like, 
I could not for the life of me sell this book. Mm -hmm. uh, we went all over. All of the big five rejected it. Scholastic rejected it. Everybody was like, no, sorry, middle grade science fiction doesn't sell. We will not put this out in print. So it's not that I'm being mean and like not letting them have this cool print version of a book they want. I mean, if they want to give me a contract and publish it in print, let's do it. Um, authors go where the money is. And if you as a reader are not in the same place where the money is, you're going to be frustrated. But that's don't blame the author for that. Yeah. Blame the stupid publishing industry. Well, and it's it's interesting how the, the publishing industry is. It, it's a much smaller scale than stuff like Netflix and Amazon, but they're doing the exact same thing. They're all jockeying for position mm -hmm. um, and and production and putting out the content people want. Yeah. You know, now now that uh, people are can be, you know, streaming services have become content providers which has just blown open the doors on the movie industry and the publishing industry and, you know, all these other places. And people are realizing, Oh, we can be publishers now mm -hmm. instead of just distributors. And that's changing the way things are working. And so, you know, I understand that not everybody wants to listen to audiobook audio. And I also understand that some people just adamantly hate Amazon as uh, as an entity. Yeah. And I can totally sympathize with that. I, it's, it's almost certainly an evil organization and without question causes great evil in the world. On the other hand, every author in America, whether they are traditionally published or self-published or audio or whatever, every single author, 70 to 80% of their sales are through Amazon at some level or another. Like, what do you want us to do? Just not publish books? Yeah, I had kind of a similar conversation with our friend Charlie Holmberg because she, you know, publishes through their, you know, their actual their imprint, Forty Seven North, and uh, and it's and from her perspective, they've been good to her yeah. and it's worked out fine, and uh, and so yeah, it's it is a little bit of a weird place to be in, you know, because it a, a publishing imprint isn't the big giant warehouses. Mm -hmm. um, it's total. It's related. It's the same company, but it's yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you are buying a Charlie book through 47 North or a Dan book through Audible, sure, you're putting some money into Bezos pocket that he's just going to piss away into his outer space, whatever. <laughs> um, and he's the richest man, you know, in the universe. And I absolutely is is squandering money that could be put towards better things. That's true. And that's inescapable right now with Amazon. But like I said, you know, that's that's how publishing works right now. Uh, I don't know if it's true for you, but I would guess that a solid 30, 35 percent of your sales are ebook, almost all of which go through Amazon. Probably 30 to 40 percent of your sales are audio, most of which go through Audible. It's just how the industry is right now. And uh, if you want to support authors, you will, by extension, be supporting this rich oligarch who's, you know, you don't want to support, but what else are you going to do? Well, and it's, you know, if, that, if you want to go down that kind of moral discussion road, you can have that conversation about literally any store that you walk into. Mm -hmm. um, you know, even if, even if you want to say, Oh, but my mom and pop shop, well, yeah, but they still stock Coca-Cola and they still stock, you know, some, you know, big companies products that, you know, is, is horrible. Uh, but that's, that's just kind of the intermeshed, sort of world that we live in. Yeah, it's 
that's that's the inevitable side product of the global economy and and of the internet and of you know corporatism and capitalism and that's how it works so please support your local authors regardless <laughs> of the couple of pennies you are also spending on a mega corporation <laughs> And if you'd like to, you know, leave $100 bills in my P.O. box, I'm totally okay with that. <laughs> Absolutely. I will I will take your money in whatever format you would like to give it to me. That'll that'll stick it to Bezos. <laughs> well, and that's one of the fun things that I've been able to do now with doing the professional GMing stuff mm-hmm. is like if somebody wants Dan Wells to tell them a story. Okay, I've got an outlet for that. I will tell you a story directly to you and your friends personally. You get to be a part of it and you pay me directly and Bezos doesn't get a penny of it. <laughs> How have you been enjoying that? Uh, it's great. Um, last year, so 2020, I started this in March, kind of when the, the, the walls came down and we were all locked in our homes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, it's something I've wanted to do for a while. Um, a, a friend mutual friend you and I have, Natasha Entz. Uh, she's a professional GM. And I met her a few years ago and it, it, I never knew that was even possible. And so in, in getting to know her and talking to her, I realized, oh, this is something that I could do and that I think I would enjoy. And I just never had the time for it. And so when, uh, you know, when the quarantine hit March, 2020, I thought, well, this is the perfect time because people are stuck at home. People are you know, hungry for social interaction. This is a way that I can, you know, approach readers and fans directly and and we can have some fun together and people will have a chance to hang out with the group. And so I, I started doing this. About half of my groups are mutual friends who got together and said, hey, let's hire Dan. But the other half of my groups are just people, you know, exactly like I suspected would be out there who are alone, they live alone, or they used to have a group that met in person, but now they don't because they can't meet in person anymore. And so they're kind of found family groups that I have put together of little singles here and there. Uh, one married couple actually was there for a while. And uh, yeah, so we we are their social circle now. And now that things are opening back up, I kind of thought, well, I wonder if this is all going to collapse. And it hasn't. Uh, you know, the, the groups are sticking together, which is a lot of fun. So in 2020, just from March through December, doing the professional GMing, I earned $23,000, which is not livable for a family of eight. I've got six kids. <laughs> um, but it is paying the mortgage, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And it is contributing to the food. And it is supplementing all of the author income that I do. Uh, and so it's been really surprisingly lucrative. I suspect I might be at or near the cap. I'm not sure if I could scale it any higher than that. I don't think I could make it my only job. Yeah. But I'm enjoying it. Uh, I've I've also got, you know, slots open. If anybody out there listening is like, hey, you know, I want to play a game with Dan. I've, I've got some slots open. Let's talk. Well, and I remember you and I talking about this years ago when you were first kind of toying with it, but didn't have time. And I I think what I love about it is, is that especially with things like Zoom, you know, like it's a great opportunity for people like, like young professionals that, you know, are making decent money, but maybe live in a city where they don't know anybody. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they've got nothing to do on the weekends 
or the evenings and they can just, you know, they could join a and d group with an author that sets everything <laughs> up for them and they don't have to do the creative heavy lifting. They just have to show up and play. Yeah. Uh, I, I found that, you know, a lot of my clients, not all of them, but a lot of my clients are tech professionals mm-hmm. who are, have no children. <laughs> and, and I've got some, you know, some family people and, and things like that. I've got a, a wide range. But I would say maybe half of the total clientele are single tech bros who are like, I'm a nerd and I've got a lot of money and that's, you know, but, but I don't have any friends that I can see face to face. I'm, I'm selling to the, the Dave Woolreichs of the world. <laughs> <laughs> Dave Woolreich is a, uh, a mutual friend of ours um, who works in tech. <laughs> Um, no, that's fantastic. I, I think that's super cool that that continues to do well and be a thing. Um, and, uh, and I am curious how that will change or not going forward. Yeah. I charge $20 per person per hour. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have people who contact me and they're really excited. And then I tell them the price and they're like, what? That's way too much. Sorry. And then they back out. Uh, but I've also got a ton of people who are like, yeah, you know what? That's fair. Yeah. That, that in fact, I've got some people who think I am, I am wildly undercharging for what I provide. Uh, and it's hard to, like, it was, it was you who helped convince me to charge even $20 an hour. I was going to try to charge less because I personally am super cheap. I would never pay $20 an hour for someone to, to game with me because I, you know, I've got, six kids. Like I said, I don't have that kind of disposable income, but it, it's working. I don't know if I could feasibly charge more. Uh, I am kind of thinking that maybe, you know, when fall hits or something mm-hmm. at some kind of clearly defined point that I will just grandfather in the groups I already have and say, okay, you're at the $20 rate. You'll stay there forever. Uh, but then up it to like 30 an hour and see if you know, see what happens. Maybe. Maybe nobody will pay for that. Maybe people still will. I have no idea. Well, and and part of the discussion we had a, a while back was that, like, I know tons of people who, you know, that that their budget for a night out once a week is 200 bucks. And, and then they suddenly hit their 30s and, you know, clubbing isn't that much fun anymore. And, <laughs> and drinking, yeah. you know, $200 worth of whiskey, you know, it's it's losing its touch kind of thing. And so they're looking for something else to do with, you know, that budget that they have for their fun evening every week. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where that comes from. Well, I think so. And I used to do a lot of freelance writing uh, before I was published. I would do, you know, I would write websites for people back when I was a corporate writer in the before times. Uh, and that was one of the things that I always did, you know, charge what you're worth. That's like the the number one rule of freelancing, charge what you're actually worth and what your time is worth. Yeah. And I don't know why it was so hard for me to apply that same rule that I used to be so strict about to this new thing, maybe because it's gaming. And I think of gaming as fun. Like if you want me to write a website for you, I'm absolutely going to charge you like a hundred dollars an hour. Uh, but for gaming, like gaming's just fun. <laughs> <laughs> I feel guilty charging people too much for that. Well, and there's a discussion there about the kind of what authors are paid in general in across many industries, uh, because, you know, like 
part of the problem of being an author getting into an industry uh you know when you when you jump in science fiction and fantasy a lot of classes will tell you um you know go try to write short stories or novellas for various magazines or you know e-zines and things like that but most of them pay you know five cents a word less mm-hmm. and so it's not necessarily because they're cheap but because that's all they can afford and it's it's a it's a weird place to figure that out yeah and and then you start you know compare that to what a, a novelist makes and you know if it's a debut novel then yeah you're going to be getting, you know, 10 or 15,000 for your first book. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least that's what I got 12 years ago. I don't know what it is now. And then you compare that to Hollywood. If someone's writing a pilot script for an episode of television, that could be six or even seven figures mm-hmm. for one script. And then if you are hired on as a lead writer on that series, you could be looking at six figures per script you turn in just for an episode, half hour episode of TV. Uh, and it's just, the differences in scale are so wildly different. And with reason. Here's one of my favorite stories to tell. So did you see the uh, the Green Lantern movie when it came out? No. No, nobody did. It's one of the most abysmal failures of the modern superhero like movie renaissance, right? Yeah. Nobody saw it. It lost so much money. It was a disaster. But if every single person who bought an opening night ticket to that movie had bought an, an issue of a print comic instead, mm-hmm. it would be the best selling comic book in history. And that's, that's just a wild different in scales. Yeah. It's, it's, it's mind blowing. Uh, the difference that you get when you jump from one format to another, like we think of publishing as such big business. Mm-hmm. And, you know, authors will say, fans will come to me and say, have you ever thought, this is how they phrase it, have you ever thought about adapting your book into a movie? Like, listen, dude, <laughs> that is the consuming thought of my business mind, um, because there's so much more money in it. And they will be surprised, like, Zero G, this is a bestseller. This is an, a top 10 Audible bestseller multiple different times. How is there not a movie adaptation of this yet? And it's because, you know, the 10,000 people that it takes to get something in the top 10 of Audible wouldn't even move the needle on Netflix. Yeah. So being huge in one medium doesn't mean you're going to be anything in another one. Right. And and huge is relative, you know, like like you can you can talk about, you know, both of us know dozens of New York Times bestsellers who kind of their overall career is just okay. You know, it's mm-hmm. like the New York Times bestseller is, is supposed to be kind of the gold standard. That's what kind of normal people think of. And, and even writers still kind of think of it that way, but it doesn't guarantee anything. Now, if you're hitting number one 20 times, then yes, you are definitely a millionaire. Like you've make, you, you make huge <laughs> amounts of money. And those that, that kind of 0.1% of the writing community is yeah they're crazy successful they are the you know the the bill gates jeff bezos of (laughs) writing but then everyone else like even kind of the middle class of writing isn't really it doesn't coincide with the middle class of the real world yeah and the problem is that everyone has seen 
you know, depictions of authors, like if you watched Castle, you have a very incorrect view of what the publishing industry is like. That's a, you know, multimillionaire author who can turn around a book and get it on shelves in a couple of episodes. Yeah. And he lives in this gargantuan apartment in downtown Manhattan. Like, no, that is not how any of this works. (laughs) Publishing, there is not a lot of money in it. People assume that, you know, if you've got a book on a shelf in Barnes and Noble, you must be rich. Mm -hmm. No, we are not. Uh, I consider myself exceptionally fortunate to be able to support a family of eight. I'm one of the very few authors, you know, like you said, one or even 0.1% who can do that without a second job. And so nobody gets into this business to get rich. We do it because we love telling stories. I got in it to get rich. I mean, I'm still working on it, but (laughs) maybe, maybe someday. Someday. (laughs) It's, you know, hope springs eternal. Yeah. So um, since, uh, since I've got you on here, it feels like it would be a huge uh, miss to not talk about the Twitch streaming show that we do together. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. <laughs> Typecast RPG. Uh, so explain to the listeners what that is and why we do it. So... You know, we talked earlier about how the incredible ease of distribution is turning everyone into content creators and content providers. And this started happening several years ago with role-playing games. The ability to, uh, you know, play D&D or whatever and then stream it live, whether it's over YouTube or Twitch or, or whatever, um, has kind of become this whole genre. And some of them, like Critical Role, are immensely popular multi-million dollar careers for vast numbers of people. Some of them are much smaller than that. Um, ours, for example, is <laughs> very <laughs> tiny and does not actually make any money at all. But uh, two and a half years ago, Deborah Ann Wool, who is uh, the actress from Daredevil, mm-hmm. she was the reporter. She came out, she's a, a longtime D&D nerd, and she's a big gamer. And so she came out with her own show that was on The Nerdist or something that was only going to be like a six-episode miniseries, but she was GMing a D&D campaign uh, and streaming it over this service. And that's when I thought, oh my gosh, like this has been a cool nerd thing in the corners of the internet for a long time. 
Critical Role was big. A couple others were getting big, like high rollers and things like that. But if we're getting to the point where like known celebrities are doing their own shows, mm-hmm. then this is about to, you know, to either get so huge, we can't not be a part of it, or to be so overdone that nobody cares anymore. <laughs> uh, which is when I said, you know, just like pro GMing, uh, actual play streams is something I've always wanted to do. And I'm like, well, if I'm going to do it, it has to be now because I either want to get in on the ground floor or I want to be a part of it before it dies. And uh, so I talked to you and I talked to some other people and we threw it together relatively quickly. We did not know what we were doing in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And I can look back and say, oh yeah, we wasted months just dorking around doing this all the wrong ways. But it's been going for two and a half years now. Uh, We're several months into our second campaign. Uh, You know, the, we just brought a new cast member in because uh, uh, one guy who's been with us for about two years had to step away. And so we brought in new cast and kind of a constant rotating group of people. Uh, It's been a lot of fun, but uh, you know, it, it has not made us any significant amount of money. I do think that, that we earn like a few bucks and we've got some tiny little couple hundred dollar nest egg. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's not paying me. Well, and it's, it's an interesting thing because it kind of goes back to that discussion of scale. Um, because, you know, we taught the big one critical role. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a bunch that are kind of the, you know, that are not as big as critical role, but still do very successfully and are the main job for a lot of people. Yeah. But there are a lot of those streams that, you know, get five viewers a week. And it's funny because I, I asked around a lot uh, because I, I feel like, you know, us getting between 40 and 50 viewers a week, I felt like, oh, that's barely anything. We're not making any money from it. It doesn't feel like anything. And people were saying to me, holy crap, you get that many viewers a week? That's amazing. You guys are superstars. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, so this is how Twitch works. Yeah. Well, and podcasting is very similar, right? If you get more than, I think the line is like 27 listeners per episode, mm-hmm. you're in the top 50% of podcasts worldwide. Uh, and I'm suspecting that that Twitch is very similar to that. Um, and there are, you know, the people who you know, especially outside of role-playing games, people who play League of Legends or Overwatch or whatever on Twitch and earn millions of dollars because everyone wants to watch them because they're so good or they're so interesting or they're so toxic and and whatever, and people want to do that. And so, yeah, we get, you know, 45, 50 viewers per episode, and it's it's depressing to me that that's good <laughs> yeah. uh, because I really wanted to have a ton. When we started this, one of the people that we approached was Brandon Sanderson, uh, who's one of my best friends. And he was very excited about joining this. We used to game together all the time. And then, you know, I moved and we weren't near each other and it all fell apart. And so I brought this back to him and I said, look, we're going to do this as a Twitch show and it'll give us a chance to play together. But also it, has the potential to earn some money so we can think of it as a business thing rather than just a pure waste of our time, which is kind of how you have to present things to Brandon because he is so busy constantly. Um, And he was very excited about that and said yes, and he was going to be a regular on the show. And then a couple of weeks later, uh, the Wheel of Time TV show went into active production 
and he got a couple other big movie deals and things. And I don't know how many of those I, I'm allowed to to talk about. Uh, but basically, he was spending half his half of any given month in Hollywood in meetings with people and overseeing production companies and did not have time anymore. And so he had to step away. And I don't know if it's true, but there's a big part of me that assumes that if we had Brandon in the cast, <laughs> we would have way more viewers than we do. We'd be looking at, you know, 400 instead of 40. I don't know. Um, and that might not be true. And that might be an unfair thing to say. Uh, I had hoped that the fact that we're all authors would be kind of a hook to pull people in. Yeah. And maybe it has been, you know, we, we do tend to have more Twitch viewers than, than uh, a lot of these little streams do. Uh, but it hasn't been the, you know, none, none of us are huge. We're all mid-list. Right. <laughs> so we're a mid-list Twitch show. Yeah. And it's just, you know, but it's, it's still fun though. You know, it's like a, mm -hmm. it's one of those things that, you know, once we finally settled in and got things figured out, uh, which took us quite a long time, a disturbing yes, long time. Uh, it it did kind of fall into, oh, that's our weekly game night. And we just mm -hmm. happened to be filming it. Yeah. And and it's been a lot of fun. Uh, the the for the for the viewers who don't know, you should absolutely check this out. We do it live on Twitch Tuesday nights, although we also upload them to YouTube and you can just look it up there and watch the old episodes. Uh, the current cast is you and me, uh, Marty Murdoch who is a local Utah game writer. She's phenomenal. Courtney Alameda, who is a fellow horror writer and an author that I've, you know, done a lot of stuff with for years. She's fantastic. And then um, Howard Taylor, who is with me on the other podcast that I do, Writing Excuses, mm -hmm. uh, who does a science fiction webcomic, uh, brilliant illustrator and artist. And then the sixth person, the fifth player, is in flux right now. By the time this airs, everyone will know who it is. So should I just say who it is? Yeah, because this will be a few weeks at least. Yeah, this will be a few weeks away. At the at time of recording, this is still a secret. Um, but it's Piper J. Drake, who is a uh, romance and suspense and science fiction writer that I've known for a long time. Uh, and she's really wonderful. And so it's it's the six of us. It's a lot of fun. One thing that we decided... Because Dungeons and Dragons is the biggest role-playing game in the world. I would say it beats everything else combined. Fifth yeah. edition is so large. Maybe in because of critical role. I don't know. Uh, but it dominates the market to, to an absolutely ridiculous degree. And so we've always, for that reason, stuck with D&D &D as the game we play, thinking, well, this is how you know we're going to get viewers. Now that we've settled into this pretty consistent 40 to 50 viewers, I'm wondering if we could just change. Like, I'm very <laughs> tempted whenever we wrap up the current campaign to try a different game system yeah. and see if we still get people, you see if we still get the same people, maybe we attract some extra people, because I don't think the game system is as important as we used to think it was. Yeah, and I, uh, I don't know, I'd, I'd certainly be interested. You know, it's it's funny because I'm not I'm not the RPG guy like you are. You know, I kind of play because my friends play rather than because I'm super in love with RPGs <laughs> and uh, talking to you very briefly about it and seeing some stuff online. I would love to play the Dune RPG. Oh, man, it's so good. I, I really would love to play that. So the Dune RPG, I would play in a heartbeat uh, Blades in the Dark, Pendragon. 
a lot of these other ones would be fun. In fact, for a while, Typecast had split into a second campaign where we were playing uh, Star Trek Adventures. And it was pulling in very similar numbers, at least in the 30s, mm-hmm. uh, to the D&D show, which is a sign to me that, yeah, we the, the game system doesn't matter as long as we have interesting, charismatic storytellers. Uh, you know, the one thing I do think that sets us apart from a lot of the other streams is everyone in our cast is a storyteller. Yeah. And so uh, we, you know, we know how to construct a character arc. People are sometimes much more willing to hurt their characters for long-term payoffs uh-huh. than I think a lot of players might be. I, I think that is more of the draw than the game system. And we don't need to be as strict about D&D as we have been. Right. Um, you mentioned writing excuses. That is kind of huge, isn't it? Um, we did not realize until recently how huge it was. I was. I, I told you that I think 27 listeners per episode is the cutoff for, for being in the top 50% of, of podcasts. Yeah. If you want to be in the top 1% of podcasts worldwide, it's something like three or 4,000 listeners per episode. Mm-hmm. Writing excuses over, you know, if you, if you only look at the first month an episode is online, mm-hmm. we're looking at 50 to 60,000 downloads. And that's, that's wild. Yeah. And so we're enormous. And we didn't realize that. We Here's the thing. <laughs> We've been doing writing excuses for over a decade. It's probably 13 years old at this point. Mm-hmm. And it is me, Howard Taylor, Brandon Sanderson, and Mary Robinette Kowal. Um, everyone, with the arguable exception of me, is a luminary in you know their own niche of the publishing industry. Yeah. Uh, Brandon Sanderson, you know, one of the best-selling fantasy authors in the, in the world. Uh, Mary Robinette is, uh, you know, she was president of SIFWA. Huge things. And it's 15 minutes a week. It's writing advice. It's, you know, if you want to get published or if you want to become a better writer, here's all this advice. We have become, over the course of those 13 years, very, very good at podcasting. Mm-hmm. I consider us experts. We are very terrible, genuinely terrible at promoting ourselves, at leveraging our show, uh, at selling our own books using this massive platform that we have. Um, we're absolutely abysmal at it. And a couple of months ago, uh, we were approached by a podcasting agent, which I didn't even know was a thing. <laughs> and uh, apparently it's a, it's a very new thing. It's only a few years old. Yeah. And she came to us and she's like, so uh, do you have an agent already? We're like, no. And she says, well, how do you make money? And we're like, you can make money doing this. <laughs> We don't, we've got a Patreon that, uh, you know, pulls in a, a small amount of money a month and we use that to like pay our guests and, and buy good equipment and stuff like that. Uh, and she looked at our income and then she looked at our listenership numbers. And over the long tail of an episode's life, it's like two or 300,000 listens that an episode will get. Yeah. And she and she told us, you you are idiots. Why are you not using this? We don't even really promote our own books on the show. That's how bad we are at this. We've got the chance to, uh, you know, tell people, hey, I'm going to be at this uh, event or I've got a book launch coming out. And more often than not, we will just forget to do that. 
and we will put out these episodes and it's great content, but we are so bad at promotion. We are absolutely criminally bad at, you know, promoting or, or leveraging the show. And so we've got this agent now who's trying to help us be smarter about things. And I'm hoping that that will, you know, launch us into the stratosphere of, of success. I have no idea what it's going to do. <laughs> Hopefully bleed into the other parts of your career. Well, and that's the thing. It is without question. It's even being as bad as we are at using it for promotion. It's still really good promotion mm-hmm. there. I'm, I'm currently reading Jade War by Fonda Lee, which is no lie. One of the best books I've ever read in my life. She's absolutely incredible. And I got on Twitter and just raved about it and just posted this thing like, hey, this is phenomenal. Everyone needs to read this. It's so good. Mm-hmm. You know, and I tagged her in it just to be polite because I'm like, I like hearing when people like my stuff. She probably does, too. Never did it occur to me that she even knows who I am, let alone is a fan of writing excuses. And yet she is. And so we immediately worked it out uh, that she's going to be a guest and she's going to do some episodes for us. Um, and I'm still coming to terms with that. I don't know if it is imposter syndrome or if it's just not paying attention syndrome, but, uh, I'm so mid list and I would say even low mid list in terms of readership Mm -hmm. that it always surprises me that in the industry itself, I'm actually very, very well known because of writing excuses. Authors and publishers all know who I am. And I just assume nobody knows who I am. The the first time I had somebody at a convention, and this was, I, I'd only been published for a couple of years, but the first time I had somebody hear my name, turn towards me and go, oh, you're the Powder Mage guy. Like that was like one of the biggest thrills of my professional life. <laughs> it's like somebody knows who I am. <laughs> it's so cool when it happens and it doesn't happen often. And for me, more often than not, if I'm recognized, it's for writing excuses and not for my books. I uh, I remember when we uh, early on when we started the Twitch show, I remember seeing a comment pop up of somebody uh, saying, man, I, I don't I, I feel like I recognize Dan's voice. And then like two minutes later, they said uh, they added another comment saying, oh, holy crap, Dan's on writing excuses. <laughs> yeah. And when we have our internal meetings. Like where we talk about, well, what should we do with this agent? What should we do about finding a sponsor or a network or something like that? Half the time we spend just shaking our heads like we had no idea. We genuinely, and this sounds like a humble brag, but mostly it's just us being idiots. We genuinely had no idea how popular and successful the show was. And we've kind of been squandering that uh for for years what i i think is funny is that i've known how successful and popular it was for like six or seven years <laughs> and i've talked to you about it and you've kind of just gone oh yeah yeah it's pretty well listened to yeah people listen to it yeah. um we, <laughs> in the early years of the show we actually had a sponsorship deal with audible where they paid us uh i think it was two thousand dollars a month mm-hmm. and we constantly even Brandon, who I consider to be very business savvy, every time we'd get together, he would say, we need to find a different revenue stream because sooner or later, Audible's going to figure out how much money they're wasting on us. And in hindsight, they were getting a scam and deal. Yeah. But um, so we went to Patreon thinking, well, Audible's going to drop us eventually. Let's just do it on our own terms. And we went to Patreon and we're making about the same. It's probably 1700 a month. 
um, on Patreon. But yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm I'm always curious about stuff that's long running like that. Um, do you ever in these internal meetings, do you guys ever have discussions of uh, are we running out of things to talk about for writing advice? Uh, we do, actually. Um, we have borrowed a term from Magic the Gathering, which is design space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what that means, uh, you know, the way they use it for magic is that that there's only so many different ways you can build a magic card. And if you have one card that does everything, then you don't have room to build more cards that do the same thing because you've already done it. And so they're, they're now much more careful uh, with the way they use that design space. So to translate it into us, when we first started, we had an episode called Dialogue, <laughs> which we talked about all of dialogue in 15 minutes. Uh, and eventually we realized, oh, first of all, that's such a broad overview as to be not very helpful. And second of all, we need to start being much more granular with how we approach writing topics and instruction because if we don't, we will just run out because we will cover all of dialogue and then we won't have anything else to say about it. And so we're more specific, you know, and uh, what we're doing now this year and we're going to continue it next year is we're bringing in extra hosts. The one that's running right now is uh, Dong Wan Song. Uh, they are an editor and agent mm-hmm. and they came on and talked about first pages and first chapters. And that's something we've covered before. But the current format is that we are going to have one instructor go into huge detail over eight episodes. Yeah. And we call these master classes or intensive courses. And so that gives us the chance to go back to some of these topics we've touched on lightly and just get really deep into it. So it's not just, you know, first page is 101. It's let's get super in depth and talk about as much as we can. And you get the perspective of an outside instructor. And so people will come in and they will teach us and we will just act as like the students or the panel to provide comments and and ask questions and stuff. That's been working really well. Well, and I think uh, from uh, the perspective of somebody, I I haven't listened for a little while, but I used to listen to writing excuses all the time. And coming from my perspective, I, I love the granularity. Like I love it when you guys dig into the really specific things, because honestly, it means that if I'm having a really specific problem, I can just search for an episode and I probably will find you guys talking about that exact problem. Yeah. I mean, we've been doing this for 13 years every week, 15 minute episodes. That's hundreds and hundreds of hours and frankly, hundreds of episodes. So yeah, it's uh I'm glad that it is useful to people. And, uh, you know, I would encourage you or whoever's listening to check out the the masterclasses we're doing now. We had um, over the spring, uh, James Sutter and Cassandra Kaw, who are both game writers. Mm -hmm. And we could have easily done, you know, one 15 minute episode of this is what it's like writing interactive fiction, or this is how you break into the game industry or something like that. But having them break it down into a big eight episode course where it was, you know, we were able to do an entire episode on how to manage a team of people, uh, which outside of this masterclass format, there, there wouldn't be a lot of room for that in the show, but being able to drill down very specifically, there was. And so, you know, I can't remember exactly what the episodes were, but they were really in-depth topics. If you want to write about gaming, you need to know, for example, how to work 
rewards into the story. You don't have to reward a character in normal fiction yeah. because they can't just walk away from it. In games, you need to dole out rewards so they feel like they're accomplishing things and they want to keep playing and they have goals. How do you work that into a story uh, is the kind of thing game writers need to worry about and novel writers don't. And so we did a whole, you know, talk about that. So it's really nice to be able to get really specific with a lot of this stuff. When we bring instructors in to our retreat, because we do a writing retreat every year and we will bring outside instructors, we warn them every time these are not level 101 students. These are, you know, think of this as like a graduate class or a, a very high level conference. And the ones who ignore us and come in expecting to just do their standard thing where they will talk about you know, dialogue for an hour and be done. Yeah. Um, they just get steamrolled by the students because they've heard all of the the entry level stuff. And we like to give much more advanced classes whenever we can. Yeah, that's super cool. And and even to people that aren't writers, I think a lot of that stuff, a lot of the granular stuff, like talking about talking about how to manage a team of people when you're doing RPGs, I think that's stupidly interesting. It is. Uh, and, you know, we do have a significant portion of the listeners for the show are not writers. They just want to see how the sausage is made. Yeah. And you and I were talking about this earlier with the soda pop guy. It's really compelling and fascinating to listen to somebody who is competent and knowledgeable in a niche area mm -hmm. uh, to just, you know, this. We watched this video this morning that you that you showed me. That was a guy who has a whole store uh, in L.A. where all he sells is soda and like weird off-brand soda you've never heard of before. And he sources like rose-flavored soda from Bulgaria and all kinds of weird things. But he knows everything about them. He has like 500 kinds of soda in his store and is sodapopstop.com, anyone who wants to look it up. Uh, he knows all this stuff and he can talk at length about it. And even though... Prior to watching that, I could not have cared less about soda. Right. It was really, really interesting to watch a guy who knows his stuff get really detailed and specific and enthusiastic about it. And so I think that that is, you know, that, that applies to writing excuses. That applies to a lot of other things. Uh, even if you aren't a writer, there's still a lot to get from these kinds of classes because you're a reader and it's fun to to just listen to experts talk about the thing they're experts in. And part of that, uh, that kind of is where this podcast comes from. You know, I, I very specifically wanted to avoid kind of the classic, you know, writing advice stuff, you know, partially because of writing excuses, because of there's lots of podcasts that do exactly that. But like yeah. writers, a lot of writers are very interesting people that come from weird backgrounds that have done really cool things. And some of them have were in a career for 30 years before they wrote a word. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I wanted to, I wanted to just sit down and chat with them about, you know, what's interesting about them. Yeah. We've actually talked a lot more about writing and publishing in this episode than I expect. Us to. Honestly, me too, but it's been <laughs> fun. And I, the thing is, is, and one of the reasons we're friends is because I really like listening to you talk about these kind of things. Oh, well, and it's, thank you. it's, uh, it's, you know, it's interesting stuff. And, and some of my episodes are maybe not going to cover writing at all. Um, but 
you know, like I, I've been asking about people's kids way too much. And I'm like, well, Dan's got six kids. Should I ask about his kids? But I've been asking everybody else about their kids. Should I skip that? I don't know. Should we talk about the pandemic? No. And then, and then <laughs> we'll just talk about all the different crazy things Dan does professionally, which is, you know, a dozen things. Yeah. I write books. I am a professional GM. I have a YouTube channel where I review games. I have two different podcasts, uh, Writing Excuses and Intentionally Blank, which I do with Brandon. And that's just the two of us trying to make each other laugh. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no like productive value to that podcast whatsoever. <laughs> I write stage plays. I write scripts. I write game fiction. I write everything. I have as many eggs in as many baskets as I could possibly have because... Publishing is a volatile, stupid industry, and sooner or later, one of your baskets full of eggs is going to explode, and if you don't have other baskets with other eggs, you will be poor Mm -hmm. and might have to get a real job, which I definitely want to avoid. Yeah, I mean, at all costs, right? Yep. Okay, so uh, we're we're over an hour now. Yeah, yeah. Do we need to stop? Do you want to ask me about non- publishing stuff? No, actually, I was going to wrap things up here, but I have something very important to ask you to end. Okay. Which is, what's the last meal that blew your mind? The last meal that blew my mind. Okay, the question here is, how are we going to define blew my mind? Because I know you ask this to everyone else, because I've listened to all the other episodes, Mm -hmm. and, and I've been thinking, what would I say? Is it blew my mind because it was a new experience I hadn't had before? Or just because it was super good? Because I've got answers for both. Hit me with both then. Okay. So the the last time I ate something that was brand new that I had never experienced before uh, was when I went to Hawaii uh, two years ago. First time I've been there, first experience with Hawaiian food. Um, and I, I don't know what it is. I mean, it, and the thing is, a typical plate, you know, mixed plate of Hawaiian food that you would get, you know, in a grocery store or whatever is basically just there's some barbecue pork and there's some rice and there's some macaroni salad. And it's and you've had all of those things before, but I had never had them all together before. And so that combination, like I'd never, you know, growing up in, you know, the Western states, I've had macaroni salad all the time, but I've never had it at the same time that there was teriyaki sauce on the plate. Uh, and so just the combination of flavors and discovering this culture and where that type of mixed plate comes from and, uh, you know, the, the mix of, you know, Island culture and Asian culture and American culture coming together. Uh, it was a whole new food experience for me and I really loved it. Uh, so that, that blew my mind, but more recently I I took my son when he graduated high school to Puerto Vallarta just a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And I used to live in Mexico, uh, in the north, not down in the in the south. But um, while I was there, uh, I haven't, you know, I lived in Mexico 25 years ago. So it's been a long time. And uh, we went to a grocery store uh, to get, you know, random breakfast foods and pastries and stuff. And I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to recreate the old quesadillas that I used to make when I lived here. And so I bought the really good quality flour tortillas. They don't sell anything remotely like this in the US, at least not in any store in Utah. And I bought the good uh, queso chihuahua, queso menonita kind of stuff that 
they have in in North Mexico mm-hmm. that is, in my opinion, the very best quesadilla cheese. It's a very melty white cheese. And then, you know, some ham. I used to use uh, queso de puerco and I, I got some other just like ham slices. Very simple ingredients, but the authentic Mexican versions of them. And then, you know, chopped it all up and made it and, and cooked it on a little grill. And oh, my stars. Just that, you know, it took me back to when I was, uh, you know, 20 years old and lived in Mexico. And the flavors were exactly what I remembered and exactly what I wanted. Uh, and it was this just burst of nostalgia and deliciousness. That, that was like the, the best thing I ate the whole week we were there. You you took me to a little Mexican place in San Jose that like their quesadilla changed my life. And <laughs> I still think about it like four years later or something like that. Mm-hmm. Just so stupidly good. And it's just a quesadilla. But holy yeah. crap, it was so good. If, if you get the right ingredients and they are prepared in the right way, there's absolutely nothing like Mexican food, even the really simple stuff. In fact, I would say especially the really simple stuff. Mm. And that wasn't even the best Mexican place I went to in San Jose. There was a way better one <laughs> that I went to later that I'm going to have to take you to next time we're there. But yeah. So good, man. Awesome. Well, hey, Dan, thanks so much for coming on. It's been really fun chatting with you. It has been fun. Uh, I wish we could chat for like another hour, but we'll just have to be done. That was my good friend, Dan Wells. Thanks again to Dan for sitting down to chat. You can find links to Dan's social media and some of his books down in the show notes. If you'd like to order some of those book plates that I mentioned at the beginning of the show, you can find them at the store on brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production support. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. Don't forget to like and subscribe. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.